Today we have a challenge on our hands, and that is because there is probably no more offensive verse in the Bible, at least to many, than one of the verses that is in our text for today. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So one of the harshest criticisms of Christianity today is that it's exclusive, that is, it contains the idea that Jesus is the only way, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Dalai Lama, and not Tony Robbins, only Jesus. That means that Christians are viewed often as arrogant, closed-minded, bigoted, snobbish, and so many say that it is intolerant for Christians to claim that they are right and all other religions are wrong. Now, this is not a new issue. This has been around since the beginning of Christian faith. We live in a diverse world. The ancient world was even more so. We have a half a dozen world religions. They had dozens. And, that, and like today, those religious traditions had various teachings that were in many places very contradictory. One way that we deal with the religious diversity that we have today, or the pluralism, is to say that all religions, all spiritual paths are equally valid to God. That's the idea of inclusivity. And so a metaphor is used of the idea of different paths up the same mountain. Some use the metaphor of a blind man or a series of blind men and an elephant, and they stumble on this elephant, and one grabs onto the tail and assumes that it's a rope, thin and flexible. Another, a leg, puts his arms around it, feels its rough texture, and thinks perhaps he's run into a tree. Another bumps into the side of the animal and thinks, oh, I found a stone wall. Still another finds the trunk and imagines that it's a hose. Since they can't see the hole as the story goes, then they're all right and wrong at the same time that all religions are the same, they just see God from different perspectives. Now, the problem with that illustration is that the story only works if you know there's a whole elephant. In other words, it could be that the blind men are actually bumping into different things, a rope, a tree, a wall, a hose, etc. So to say that no one has the whole truth is to say that you see the truth, which is to say something that you say no one has. The metaphor then ultimately breaks down. But even understanding this, it's difficult to immediately accept what Jesus has to say here. Now, we'll get to that a bit later and hopefully uh, be helpful to you on that. Now, about a month ago, we began a new series called John on Jesus. This is the second half of John's biography of Jesus that we'll be dealing with through Easter and a little bit beyond. And we said at the beginning that it had three sections. One section has to do with reactions to Jesus, the various ways that he was viewed by people, some positive, some not so much. And it was the section we finished last week. Then this week, we start the second session, which we've, or section, which we've called Conversations. So over the next five weeks, we'll look closely at a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, a wide-ranging conversation over a series of topics that was full of comfort and challenge and hope and gives us a window into the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples and a relationship that he invites each of us into. These chapters are among the most precious and intimate that we have in the New Testament. Along the way, well, I think we'll find that there are some deep theological insights. Now, to set the context, we need a little background for the story that we have today. Jesus has gathered along with his disciples in a rented room. Um, it's often called the upper room. It's there that they will share a meal, the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples. That's where he gives them the celebration of communion, which we'll celebrate later in our service today here. But he begins that conversation with a few cryptic comments in chapter 13. We're going to focus on chapter 14, but let me just back up to set some context. In chapter 13, verse 33, he says, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me but where I'm going, you can't come. Now, Peter asks a question to that. He says, Lord, where are you going? 
And then Jesus replies with something that all of them find very confusing. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. When our uh, youngest daughter, Hannah, was uh, little, we called her Vegas, the child that never sleeps, because she stayed up late. She got up in the middle of the night. She got up early. Um, she was just impossible. And um, so one of the things we do is we kind of trade it off. So my wife typically got up with her in the night when she wanted to play at about 2 in the morning. And then uh, when she woke up at 5.30, then I would get up with her. And what we had was a little routine. We'd go into the family room, and we'd put a video in the VHS player, She'd watch a video, I'd read my Bible. And one of the videos that we watched was one called uh, Baby Songs. It had a series of inane songs that I don't really want to ever repeat, but one of them had the lyrics, my mommy comes back, my mommy comes back, she always comes back to get me. My mommy comes back, my mommy comes back, she never would forget me. Hannah struggled with separation anxiety. So we would sing these lyrics to her to remind her that her mom was always there for her and would always return if she happened to leave. Well, I would say that in some ways, the disciples themselves are having an adult form of separation anxiety. When Jesus said that, uh, that he was going to end up leaving them, where they wondered where he was going, would they be able to follow him, what would happen after he left, they were feeling abandoned and had grave concerns about the future. And that leads into the text that we have for today in John chapter 14. And if you'd like to, you can follow along in one of the Pew Bibles on page 1641, page 1641, although the words will also be on the screen. And I'm going to begin reading with chapter, chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus begins by trying to comfort them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And these are really remarkable words of reassurance. He says, don't despair, I'm not gonna abandon you. He's even, in chapter 13, predicted that Peter would deny him and the other disciples would abandon him. And he's saying, even if you fail me, I will not abandon you. And then he gives this little speech that comes right before the most difficult trial that Jesus will ever face in his life. And he's the one giving them emotional support when he should be the one asking for emotional and spiritual support. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, I'll take care of you. And this is to be understood as more than just wishful thinking. He's not just, they're not just to say, I hope he comes through. He's saying, I will come through for you. I grew up in Kansas, and uh, Kansas is famous for tornadoes, although actually Oklahoma and Texas have a lot more than Kansas does. But I do remember every summer we would have these tornado warnings, and sirens would go off, and my dad would gather us all, and we'd go to the basement in a safe place. And I remember actually not being all that afraid. I'll have to confirm that with my parents, but I wasn't afraid, at least in my memory, because I knew that my dad was there. He was there to protect me. That's a little bit of what Jesus is trying to convey to them. But then he does more than offer to care for them. He tells them that he is making preparations for their future. Let me read again verses two and three. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. 
These words have provided great comfort to many over the years. I'm often asked to use these words in a funeral. And the reason why is because what Jesus is referring to, the place he's talking about, is the rooms that are in heaven. Last year, we spent a whole week talking about heaven because there are so many misconceptions about it. Um, One of those is that it's a place up there. Um, So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, we're thinking of a place in the sky. But notice what he says next. He says, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That means that heaven is really anywhere that Jesus is. In fact, years later, the same author that wrote this biography of Jesus, John, would write another book in the New Testament, a strange, hard-to-understand book called Revelation. And in chapters 21 and 22, he describes what will happen when Jesus returns at the end of time. And what he describes is how God will create a new heaven and a new earth, a literal heaven on earth, where we will live with him for eternity. So we're to understand that heaven will be here in a recreated earth, and we will live with Jesus for eternity. So Jesus is saying, don't worry, I'm not abandoning you. I am preparing a place that you will one day join me in. Now, I've read these words dozens of times and reread them again this week and, and thought about them in a new way. I realized that when he talks about preparing a place, that really what he's talking about is home, an eternal home. I spent the week, most of the week anyway, in California this week in a very nice resort in Huntington Beach, south of L.A. Um, I looked it up. It's a four and a half star hotel out of five. And it was nice. I would love to have their interior designer remodel our uh, um, master bath. It was really nice. Um, But I got to tell you, when it came time to leave, I I wasn't anxious to stay. I wanted to get back home. I wanted to come home to Minneapolis. There's something inside of us, deep inside of us, that wants a place to call home, a place where you belong, where you're totally accepted, a place where you can be yourself, at least the best version of yourself a place with a fire in the fireplace and the smell of a good meal being prepared in the kitchen, a place where you're warmly greeted and invited to sit down and you know your home. Now, no matter how great our homes are on earth, the one that Jesus describes here is far better. It's the place we've been longing for, even if we didn't know it. Every other home we've ever been in is deficient in some way, but not this one. It's in the Father's house, the place where Jesus is, a place more real than anything we've ever experienced here on earth with beauty beyond anything that we can imagine. St. Paul once wrote it, talked about it this way. He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I should note here that home is a comforting word for many, but not all. Because some of you, I know, grew up in difficult homes. Maybe you've never quite felt at home anywhere. Or maybe you've lost someone either through death or divorce that has left a void, a gap in your life, and home has never quite felt the same. For far too many, home has been a painful place, a place that is anything like the heartwarming imagery in a Hallmark commercial. That might even make us, some of us, cynical about the idea of home. So when Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, the home that we've longed for, we're wondering, will it really be true? Will it really be that way? But that's what Jesus is talking about. A few weeks ago, I listened to a podcast about a guy named Greg. He grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, As he began to describe his upbringing, uh, I checked with Kara Koffler, who grew up in Houston. And not only did they go to the same high school, they were in the same graduating class, which was just kind of blew my mind. Um, But Greg described his family life as he was growing up. It was awful. He said his parents were not abusive. They were just neglectful. They divorced when he was 12. And from that time on, he was pretty much on his own. At the time, he thought he was lucky. 
He drank about three liters of pop a day. He had a diet of frozen pizza and hamburgers. He went to school when he wanted. He never did his homework because he didn't have a curfew. He'd stay up late at night watching TV and sleep in until whenever he wanted to get up. So he felt sorry for kids who had strict parents. Then when he was 14, he was accepted to a performing arts high school in Houston, and he started riding to school with a friend of his. His friend's dad, he pretty quickly realized, was strict, and the family had what seemed like to Greg curious habits. For example, his friend changed his clothes every day. <laughs> One day, his friend invited him to spend the night. It was a school night. They arrived home, and uh, his friend's mom had snacks ready on the kitchen table. And he thought, that's quaint. And then when they had finished, uh, his mom suggested uh, that they do their homework, so they did. He thought that was odd, but they did it. Then at 6 p.m., there was dinner on the table in the dining room, and everybody gathered around the table and talked about their days. After dinner, the boys played video games, and then at 9.45 at night, his friend's father said, boys, it's time for bed. Go brush your teeth. No one had ever told him to brush his teeth in his life before. They even had a toothbrush for him. And then his friend's mom had told both boys to leave their clothes in the laundry room, that she'd wash them and have them ready for them the next day. On his way back to his friend's room, his eyes filled with tears. He felt like he was in Leave it to Beaver. And he couldn't help himself. He was soon sobbing. And he said to his friend, do your parents always act like this? Yeah. Does your dad tell you to go to bed every night, 10 o'clock? Yeah. And then he said to his friend, can I stay tomorrow night? And his friend said, yeah, my parents told me you could stay here anytime you want. And so for the next three years, he stayed in his friend's house. <laughs> their rules became his rules, their punishment, his punishments. He had told his parents in junior high that his report card was none of their business. He tried that once with his friend's father and it didn't work. <laughs> From that point on, whenever his teachers needed to talk with something about something related to Greg's schooling, they called his friend's parents, not his own parents. He said, they probably wouldn't allow you to do that today, but it was the right thing to do then. After years of wandering, he found what he didn't even know he was looking for. He found a place of love and belonging. He learned that rules, routine, and structure had value. And for those three years, his friend's place became his place. His friend's home became his home. Someone once came and talked to me and was critical of how often I talked about heaven. He said, all you do is talk about the great by and by in the sky he called it evacuation theology. Now, I don't think he was being fair. I don't actually talk about heaven all that much. I talk a lot more about how Jesus asks us to live in the here and now. But I did tell him, I said, you know, well, just because some Christians talk about heaven all the time and exclusively doesn't mean that we should ignore the topic entirely. Later, I realized that the reason he didn't think heaven was such an important topic is that he was young, healthy, well-educated, and had lots of friends. For him, life was really good, very good. Now, if I had that conversation over again today, I'd ask him what he would say to someone who's old and sick, to someone who's depressed, to someone who's been hurt badly by someone they, who was once close to them, what he would say to someone who's unemployed and buried under a mountain of debt. You know, this can be a good world, a very good world, but it can also be very hard. To quote the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, life can be nasty, brutish, and short. That's why we need a hope that carries us beyond this life. If I had five more minutes with that young man, I would gently remind him that while life on this earth is very good, for others, the Father's home is all they got. We should enjoy God's good creation, but this is not our final home. That's the place that Jesus has prepared for us, the new heaven and the new earth where we will live with him for eternity.
That's why Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I've gone to prepare a place for you. In the years that would follow after Jesus rose from the dead, the early Christians faced great hardship. The Romans had never seen anything quite like the early Christian church. The way the Romans dealt with hardship was with stoicism, with a stiff upper lip. And then they watched Christians going to their death, singing hymns full of joy, counting themselves blessed to be able to suffer in the name of Jesus. People acting like they were on top of the world when really the world was on top of them. Christianity never minimizes the problems that we face. It never denies trouble. It acknowledges that the evil we face is evil. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him with your life, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose again from the dead to give you life, you can be filled with joy. You can find comfort and peace. Your hearts won't be troubled even when you face trouble because you know that Jesus has prepared a place for you. The wandering is over. The restlessness has found its rest. The place that we have longed for is there and we wouldn't want to go anywhere else. Now, when Jesus describes this place, he creates some confusion. So Thomas asks the question that was on all their minds. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? To which Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus tells Thomas and the others that he does more than show the way or teach the way. He is the way. And to many, this is the most controversial thing that Jesus ever said. There are two common objections. One is that what Jesus said is far too exclusive. To say, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, is hard for many to swallow. What Jesus says doesn't allow us to say that all religions teach the same thing. And it doesn't allow us to say that the differences between religions don't matter. But there's another way to look at what Jesus says. And that is to be reminded that at least there is a way. Sure, it comes exclusively for Jesus, through Jesus, but it's available to all. It is an inclusive message. Now, here's an irony, because the second objection is that Jesus is being too inclusive. This is not so true today, but it's been true through history. People say, well, if anyone can come to God, is it really a good thing? What Jesus says is, you don't have to clean up your act. You don't need to do anything because it's already been done for you. Even the weakest can come, anyone, whether the good or the bad. And that bothers some people because you can be a very bad person, serial killer, an ax murderer, a hedge fund manager, a politician, and you can still be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Ironically, to object to this means that it makes us more exclusive than God is. So we can be a bit bipolar about all of this. We're bothered not everyone gets in, and we're bothered that bad people get in it. And we can't have it both ways. But if we trust in what Jesus says, then we understand that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And that should in turn make those who are Christians more forgiving and understanding and sensitive and less high-minded than all. We're sinners saved by grace, not good people saved by what we do. But some say, what about all those who have not heard about Jesus? We talked a little bit about this last week. Um, and uh, what I can say here is that it's important to understand that Jesus doesn't address that in this particular text. Other places, I think he hints at it. But what we know of God is that God is merciful and just and that we are accountable for the truth we've heard, not for the truth that we have not heard. But what Jesus is telling those of us here is that there is a way. And that when we understand that God doesn't owe us anything, that we got some messes in our lives that we've made for ourselves, that we're not good people, we're rebels, that we want to control our lives and think of God only when we need him. 
And we ignore him often in our everyday lives and refuse to the way that he offers us. When Jesus said that in his father's house there were many rooms, what he's saying is that there is more than enough room for all of us. St. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, this is good, he says, and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I'm older than many of you, and when I was in grade school in the late 1960s, um, we were ushered class by class into the gym where the school nurse gave us a little cup that had a sugar cube with little pink substance on it. It was the polio vaccine. At the time, people lived in dreaded fear of the disease. It's been largely eradicated today. I even had a grade school classmate, though, who had polio. Now, what if one of us in that gym that day were to have objected? Either we wanted it administered another way, we didn't like sugar or something like that, or we wanted to wait for another day, maybe next week or a couple of weeks from now, in our preference. We'd call that child foolish. God has made a way for us in Jesus Christ. He has prepared a place for us in heaven. All we need to do is to acknowledge our own brokenness and sin and look to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who can lead us home. Thomas Akempis, the great spiritual writer and mystic, once said of Jesus, he is the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we need not have troubled hearts, that you have prepared a place for us, a place where we can go to be with you for eternity. In this life, we may face trouble, but we take comfort knowing that you are with us now and for eternity. We acknowledge that your son is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we can come to you, the Father, through him. We pray this, grateful in Jesus' name, amen.